0: Apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card, issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply.
1: You have to think about the fact that not everyone in the world is going to see constellations the same way. Uh, depending on where you are you might not be able to see constellations but um, or if you're you,
2: on drugs then or if you'll you're see them on differently drugs, yes, okay. yeah. or like not or if everybody sees
1: it can not forget was, to mention I am the drugs i'm
2: certain i am certain <laughs> yeah. that the greeks were on something for half the constellations that oh they had oh my god
1: they must have been they they must have been people oh back my. then i'm sure were doing so many drugs
2: welcome to Star Talk. Your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk, Cosmic Queries Edition, ever popular with all of our audiences. And I got with me my co host today, Matt Kirsch. Matt, welcome back to Star Talk. Thanks, Niels. Good to see you. So, Matt, you're host of uh, Probably Science. I was a yes. one time guest on there. And Absolutely. Still, call me. I'm waiting I, for I you. I will. To call me back.
3: Yeah, I'd love you to come back.
2: We Still right.
3: one of our most popular episodes. Uh, okay. So, today,
2: our topic is like folklore in astrophysics. It's like, and how do they relate? And who connects a line between modern or even ancient astrophysics? And cultures and folklore, this is like, there aren't many people who do this. And when you think about it, you know, the sky was really accessible to everyone at all times forever, right? I mean, unless it was cloudy, but cave cave dwellers saw the night sky. So of all the sciences, uh, modern astronomy and, of course, astrophysics uh, would have connections that maybe other sciences don't. So if anyone is going to tackle this, it's going to be on Star Talk. And we have an expert in this in the name of Moya McTeer. Moya, welcome to Star Talk.
1: Hi, Neil, thanks for having me. This is a goal of mine. It has been for a long time. I'm really, oh my gosh, I'm really happy to be here.
2: <laughs> Thank you. So you're an astrophysicist, mm-hmm. a folklorist and mm-hmm. a communicator. I love that 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 can be a title today because it's so necessary. Absolutely. To move information and knowledge and wisdom from one place to another that requires communicators. And so you you have your own podcast, right? At, what's it? At
1: Podcasts. <laughs> so I'm busy.
2: Excuse me. Excuse me. Okay. Podcasts. Tell me their names.
1: Uh, so the one that is my my favorite brain baby, probably just because it's oldest, is called Exolore. Um, It's a portmanteau, actually, of exoplanets and folklore because the whole shtick of the show is building fictional worlds based on facts and science. Um, Usually that means I start with some astronomical difference, like what if this planet didn't orbit a star? And we know that those types of planets exist. They're called rogue planets. There are probably tens of thousands of them out there. Um, Or what if a planet had two suns? Or what if it got hit with asteroids all the time? And then we just imagine the consequences of that difference. Um, my other podcast is more straightforward, more obviously about science, and it's called Pale Blue Pod. It's actually quite new. It just launched in November, and it's a show for people who uh, are... November
2: 2022. Of yeah.
1: 2022, yeah. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a little baby. And mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it is a show for people who are overwhelmed by the universe, but still want to be its friend. And I have... I've taken some notes <laughs> on your your show and the way that you do things. I have a comedian co-host. Her name is Corinne Caputo. She's very funny, very smart. Uh, but nice. the whole vibe of the show is extremely cozy. We want to make space feel very warm and familiar for people.
2: Oh, so, so the microphones are closed and to- say... Welcome to Pale oh, Blue Pod.
1: Yes. <laughs> <Is> <laughs> we get very ASMR Hello. about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, love so ASMR. both of you
3: okay. just then. Like, there are some listeners who got properly tingly right then, and <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: you're, you're welcome. welcome. Uh, oh, oh, oh
3: yeah, oh yeah.
2: This is the universe. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. So, tell us about your your this this strand, this thread that multiple threads that you've woven to connect astrophysics which was one half of your major in college mm-hmm. to folklore.
1: Yeah, let me let me tell you a bit about how I came to major in both of those things because um, you you might know this Neil having gone to Harvard yourself, but you there's a pre-approved list of double majors at Harvard and they're they're normal things like government and econ or psychology and computer science. Surprisingly, Astrophysics and folklore mythology, not on that list of stuff that Harvard administrators thought people would want to study together. So I actually had to do some negotiating and go to the heads of both departments, which are very small. They're two of the smallest departments at Harvard. And I said, you can't afford to lose bodies. (laughs) Let me study both of you and then everyone wins. So they did. Uh, They did let me study both of them, but only after I gave a list of potential thesis topics that I could write. Because when you do a double major at Harvard, you have to write a thesis that sits at the intersection of your two fields. Um, what I ended up doing was writing a science fiction novel that was set on a real exoplanet that I studied. Um, I characterized <laughs> it with data with data from Kepler. And I
2: the Kepler mission to find exoplanets. Right. Yes. So yeah. we have a very good data set there. I had yeah.
1: well, it was K2, so the data was a bit noisier than from the mm-hmm. Kepler primary mission. But the plot of the novel was Kind of an allegory or um, like a parallel to the Hawaiian sovereignty movement. I got to go to Hawaii. I talked to the protectors, the people demonstrating on Mauna Kea when the thirty-meter telescope conflict was happening, um, and that was a really fun project. But I—it's taken me many years to figure out. Wait, you except, were in
2: the middle of total cultural turbulence. Yes. And it was a fun project for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay.
1: I, l- I like talking to people. I like hearing their sides of things. Yeah,
2: just to catch some people up on that. So, uh, the largest, the plans to build the largest telescope in the world in the best observing site of the world, mm-hmm. which is in the Big Island of Hawaii, uh, met resistance from uh, indigenous communities who uh, viewed the mountain as, as sacred in a way that would, should not allow this kind of construction. And so, it was very, it's fascinating Cultural, political mm-hmm. uh, um, confrontations that unfolded, and you just drop yourself in the middle of it. Damn! So, so, uh, so you wrote a you wrote a novel. Interesting, yes. as as in in as a in pla- in place of, but that was your thesis. The it novel. was my I,
1: thesis. Yeah, I I had the creative part, and then I also had an appendix with all of my research notes and that's conclusions attached to a Brilliant, a brilliant
2: to it. way to to stitch those two together. Thank uh, you so much. Uh, great. But you have not. Was that published?
1: No, I it's it's in a Google Drive somewhere up on my website that people no, can read. No, somebody's got to like, make a movie out of that. I mean, I'm like, I'd be calling so calling all Hollywood. <laughs> Call. If anyone <laughs> wants to approach me for TV or movie rights to Lion <laughs> Hordes, please, please let me know.
2: <laughs> yes, definitely, we'll make that happen. Yeah, and you have another book.
1: I do. Yeah, that this book, uh, my You're most just out of control latest. You know? book. I you know what Neil? I like to stay busy.
2: <laughs> okay, all right, um, go on.
1: This latest book is called The Milky Way, An Autobiography of Our Galaxy. Please pay close attention to that word autobiography because this entire book is written from the point of view of our Milky Way galaxy. Um, It tells (laughs) its story from its birth to, you know, what might happen when the universe ends. It talks about its life. Um, it's adolescence and how it feels to make stars. It talks about the the galactic neighbors that it has. Most Wait a minute, of how which, about the
2: collision with Andromeda? What does that feel like?
1: Oh, Tell um, me. So in, in the book. Did you like it? <laughs> well, Tell it, ha- me. it hasn't happened yet. So the Milky Way is is going. Oh, it's
2: only in an autobiography up to today.
1: Up to today, Yeah.
2: Um oh. and so the Milky Way is forward it's about to, it. to merge with Andromeda. How does it feel about that?
1: Oh, it is quite excited. Um so in in <laughs> the book I I frame galactic mergers as like romance almost or oh. or you know like interpersonal relationships. And so there are minor mergers and major mergers. Minor mergers happen between galaxies where one is much more massive than the other. And So I yeah. I think of so those what, as little flings.
2: Wait wait wait. So we those who study this call that galactic cannibalism mm-hmm. when a big galaxy eats a little one, but you're calling them romances. That's, okay, that's well, such a different take on the you know, situation.
1: You know what, Neil? Why do the two have to be mutually exclusive? Like some sometimes <laughs> the galaxies are eating each other and at the um, same time it's romantic. So like whatever.
3: Okay. All right. That's And then it happens to be in, in sex world. Sometimes sometimes the female eats the male off. You know,
1: it's like uh, Yeah. Why yeah, galaxies are just praying so. mantises? Um, Ooh, yeah. But, but no, the, uh, the merger, the eventual merger between Andromeda and the Milky Way will be a major merger because their masses are much more similar. And that's more like a marriage. Um, so for billions of years, the Milky Way and Andromeda have had this long-term courtship. They've been yes. sending love notes back and forth to each other in the form of hypervelocity stars where they encode their messages into the spectra of the stars. And it's very nerdy and very cute.
2: Wow. Wow. Okay, so this just
1: came out in 2021. Is that correct? 2022, just a few months ago in August. Oh,
2: oh this came out oh, mid-2022, just, just to emerge from COVID. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Okay, so we'll look for that. Damn. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's okay. a good story. It's very sassy. I, I feel like I should prime people. The Milky Way has a healthy ego, and uh, <laughs> some might say... It's a little condescending to us humans, but like, who who wouldn't be? Look at us, who we're so tiny. Be? Every
2: alien would be condescending. Exactly. Yeah, That's clearly the case. Yeah. Clearly. And one last question. So we got your astrophysics, we got your folklore, and uh, what about your science communication, science mm. education part? Um, what What do you think is missing that you can bring to it?
1: Ooh, I think the folklore connections that I can help people make are really important um, because I, I know that people... Will feel better about learning science if they can connect to it personally. And one of the strongest personal connections, or culturally, connections, I guess. Or cul- yeah, yeah mm-hmm. culturally or, or personally. I was, I was getting there. Like the the cultural connection is a great way to make it feel more personal. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People might grow up hearing stories and legends and myths from their from their grandparents, from their uh, from their elders. And if you can learn about science and tuck it into what you've already heard from your people. Then it it makes it a lot more um, a lot more familiar.
2: Got it, got it. So that's a gap that needs filling. Very good.
1: I think so. Yeah, yeah. and I, I'm not I'm not a comedian like Matt, but I think that sometimes I can make people laugh, <laughs> and uh-huh, so I try uh-huh. to bring that into my sci com too.
2: There's been some movement within planetariums to do that, especially in planetariums that have access to indigenous communities. Yeah. in the Southwest, in Australia, if you go to Australian planetariums, there's a Aboriginal. Uh, storytelling that's often folded in to um, to the show. And they have so, such beautiful
1: stories. I mean, they they have cave paintings and cultural evidence and mm-hmm. and like oral storytelling that talks about astronomy going back like 60,000 years. It's a really, yeah, in fact, there's, yeah, old knowledge base.
2: There's a book called Dark Emu. Do you know about that?
1: Oh, dark emu? I haven't heard about the book, but I do know about the emu constellation. The,
2: yeah, so the emu, the dark emu. So Matt, obviously you know about this. The, in the sky. The the Western cultures typically describe what they see based on the existence of a star and a pattern or sources Uh of light. But if you look at the dark lanes within our own galaxy, the Milky Way across the sky, there's a stretch of darkness that looks like an emu. Okay. So, so,
3: it's the absence of oh, light. So they they go by the negative, sh- the shape of the negative space rather than the shape of this, the, the,
2: shape
1: they of have, the negative they space. They have both, but, but yeah, that particular as, constellation as the design, is negative space. As a design
2: space. person would say, yeah, negative space Well, also uh, just thing up there.
3: the look of the stars, because, you know, like you say, it was the thing that was accessible always, but in, more accessible then than it was now, because I, I grew up in London. We were talking about this just before the show and you both live in New York now. And if you look up, you don't see much in the way of stars uh, on yeah. account of all the light, but the first few times that's that I why be- we have
2: a planetarium.
3: Exactly, <laughs> the first few- yeah, you have to build, you have to artificially build it in a building inside the city. But the Correct. first few times I've been somewhere, like you know, I've been to like a, a mountainous place or or a desert or so someone that's really in the middle of nowhere, and then suddenly looked up on a clear night and just gone. Oh, now mm-hmm. I get why they were always writing poems and and songs yes. and like this is. Mm-hmm. suddenly this blanket of stars that looks truly because when I, when I grew up it's like oh yeah there's a star there's another star there's another star and then you go somewhere that's properly mm-hmm. remote like it would have been everywhere thousands of years ago right you're not and,
2: assaulted by the sky it's it's sort of yeah it, it, it is right. ab-
3: it's absurd it's this this thing that appears after nightfall is ridiculous Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's—I I think the number—the last number I saw was that 80% of the sky is affected by light and air pollution now. So, 80% of people around the world are not seeing the same sky that our ancestors saw, and that—that that makes me really sad because I think that makes people lose a big point of connection that we could have with the universe—a
2: cosmic connection.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, this is supposed to be cosmic queries, and so, but I delighted in learning. Everything about you there, <laughs> Moya, so that when the questions come in, well, th- I mean, people were cued that you were going to be our guest and with that expertise. So, Matt, uh, load up the questions and we're going to take already. a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive right in to Moya McTeer's expertise, astrophysics and folklore, when start talking to her.
3: Hi, I'm Chris Cohen from Haworth, New Jersey, and I support Star Talk on Patreon. Please enjoy this episode of Star Talk Radio with your and my favorite personal astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson.
2: We're back, Star Talk Cosmic Queries. We're talking about astrophysics and folklore with Moya McTeer, who studied both. In college and professionally, and she is now a freelance uh, podcaster and communicator, author of a book, The Milky Way, An Autobiography of Our Galaxy, written by the Milky Way itself, because Matt, she's the Milky Way whisperer, right? Yes. She's- <laughs>
3: I love the idea Moya that Moya
2: knows what the Milky Way feels. I do. And, Actually, I mean, if you uh,
1: if you look at the title page, it doesn't say by Moya McTeer. it just says via I merely channeled the Milky Way. That's right. Way. You were just you were just channeling. It.
2: Perfect. Perfect. The Milky Way. It's great it's, when publishers can go along with that with yep. that. Um,
3: the book written by the Milky that, Way with its galaxy-sized brain. And it There <laughs> you go. There you go.
2: So, let, let's bring where Cosmic Queries, Matt from our Patreon
3: yeah. Well, Yeah, the the questions are, this is, again, because of the subject matter, uh, the questions are all over the place. There's some straight astronomy questions and there's some folklore questions. I'm going to start with this one because it ties into what we were talking about just before the end of the first segment. Stephen Murphy Mm -hmm. from Atlanta says, constellations have always been a good way to identify where stars are, but they are hard to remember and teach in the modern world where few know Latin and mythology. Can Ursa Major just be the big bear would you make the Archer <laughs> Hawkeye instead of Sagittarius? It would take some getting used to, but so did Pluto not being a planet.
2: Oh, I love it! I oh, love wow. it. So, 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 Moya, I, I'm going to rephrase that question to ask you: Why don't we just update all the constellations to to modern mythologies or modern things we care about?
1: That's a great have, question.
2: Have, yeah, have like the uh, there's some con- this I've checked this because I like ice cream. There's some that looks like an ice cream cone. <laughs> And so we have Conus Major and Conus Minor, for example, (laughs) or have like the smartphone (laughs) for any rectangle that's up there. So what do you say about uh, why are we so anchored to what people were thinking 2,000 years ago? Why don't we make it relevant to today?
1: Oh, God, there's so much here. Um, So first of all, if you want to start renaming the constellations, you have to take it up with the IAU, the International Astronomical Union. They are this organization that's in charge of naming stuff officially in space. And they have designated 88 official constellations in the sky. And and I, I emphasized official there because... There's a difference between constellations and asterisms to a modern astrophysicist. A constellation is the region of the sky, like the physical area uh, that we have broken up the sky into, and there are 88 of those. Asterisms are the shapes that you can make by connecting dots between the stars, and there are an infinite number of those. So you can choose to rename your constellations. You can choose to to focus on Conus Major or Minor. (laughs) You can make an iPhone constellation um, you you can just draw connections. No, between no, whatever no, Samsung stars you want. would totally.
2: Samsung would get into that because they make the Samsung Galaxy.
1: Galaxy. Yeah, they would Say. love
2: that. <laughs> That's like a total <laughs> sponsoring opportunity for a new constellation drive. But yeah. go on.
1: But but I mean, you can make up your own constellations. I think that that would be a really cute like date idea, or just like something to do with your friends. Go out stargazing and come up with new names and new constellations and new stories to go along with them. But the constellations that we do have, the asterisms that we mostly talk about today come to us from Greek mythology. And so they have these 2,000 years worth of traction. Like they have dug themselves into our cultural memory. And before that, they came from Babylonians. Um, the Like the crab and the the bull constellations, both just pulled right from Babylonian mythology. That would mythology. be Cancer and Taurus. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah uh-huh. um, so even the Greeks were using more ancient constellations and asterisms uh, than what they were making up. So I think mm-hmm. we're just following in the grand tradition of using the names that have come before us, uh, because it would be really difficult if everyone actually did come up with their own names. You wouldn't be able to talk about it across oh, so you cultures. you wouldn't have the
2: shared. You wouldn't yeah. have a shared culture. Exactly about that. Interesting.
1: Because mm-hmm. a lot of them are. You know, the ancient Greeks called constellations katasterismoi, which meant placed by the gods. They believed that a lot of these constellations were messages intentionally put into the sky by their deities to teach us whatever we needed to know. Like the story Damn, human, of Orion. human
2: ego just knows no bounds. <laughs> <laughs> I know.
1: I, know. Well, I mean, think, it's, it, life was rough two and 3,000 years ago. It, I imagine it was Dang. pretty comforting to know that if you lived a uh, I don't know, a heroic or at least a notable enough life that maybe the gods would put you, immortalize you by putting you mm-hmm. into the sky as a constellation. That's what happened to so, Orion.
2: So I have a fast constellation story that hardly anyone knows. It's not that it's secret, it's just hardly anyone knows it. When we rebuilt the Rose Center for Earth and Space and we got our new projector from Zeiss and they were going to have the constellations built in that you can turn on and off whatever, whenever you're showing the night sky. We use that in addition to our digital projector that takes us anywhere in the universe. Point is, we create the 88 constellations. We hired an artist to give a modern um, sensibility to the illustrations. Yes, it's still Hercules, and it's still Orion, but he has a modern hand as he draws it, right? It's not these these Renaissance curly Mm -hmm. constellations that you might see in old maps. Anyhow, do you know that Gemini... In almost every me- a constellation illustration are shown as two infants, okay? Okay. Two babies. because so they're twins, okay? However, in Greek mythology, they were like adults, okay? They were like full-grown people. But the reason why they were always drawn as babies is because the stars, for you to fully flesh out a human being, they have to be very close to each other and the only way you could really pull that off is by drawing babies.
0: Uh-huh.
2: But the illustrator was gay. Mm. And he said, I'm drawing two full-grown men who are going to be really <laughs> close to each other on the sky. <laughs> so so in the Hayden Planetarium, our Gemini constellation are two full-grown men, like, with overlapping shoulders, arms around each other. I and- love that so much. I'm <laughs> saying. So, so, so this was his, his little, you know, he didn't twist history. He made it real Mm -hmm. and just said, let's try to put a little wokeness into the night sky. And so that's in the Hayden Planetarium's Star Theater.
1: I love Um, that. That's amazing. And one of the things we learn in folklore is that every new telling of a story, every new presentation of, of this folkloric knowledge is just as valid as what came before. It's not that you're changing, you're just you're evolving. You're it.
2: accreting, yeah. accreting new <laughs> new insights. Yeah. Okay, Amazing. so let's so next one. Matt, I love these. Keep All right.
3: Coming. Well, you but so you mentioned Orion. Ryan uh FX Flynn that says uh Moya, I was struck lost From week. where
2: do we know where they're from?
3: I don't oh, know where FX, uh, FX is okay. from, but mm-hmm. um Moya uh, say, uh, says, "Moya, I was struck last week by the magnificent sight of Mars atop Orion as it lay due south. Oh, here we go! It is actually mentioned in the thing as it lo- as it lay due south of my location in Vermont, so not too far, just up the road from you. During the wee hours of the morning, God of War above the Hunter, I immediately wondered if this combination featured in any of the Inca histories we've collected. Uh, you know, William Sullivan's Secret of the Incas, Myth Astronomy, and the War Against Time." Here's hoping this particular combination is only remembered for its dramatic combination of bright red, orange, and bluish-white points of light and nothing else. Wow. I love
2: that. So yeah. uh, so the question I think, Moya, would be, was Orion a hunter in other cultures? Or because... Mm. And, and is Mars the god of war in other cultures?
1: That's a great question. Um,
2: juxtaposed on the sky, you know, that could mean war, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, people, yeah, the yeah. god of
1: war over the hunter. In a lot of cultures... Um, remember, not all cultures are going to place the the stars that we associate with Orion into the same constellation. Um, so I, I know that there are there are cultures in South America where the three stars of Orion's belt are like three brothers fishing in a canoe together and have nothing Very to different. do <laughs> with yeah with Orion the hunt. I mean, they're still hunting, but it, it's it's different. I guess so. Um, um, I love, I love sorry is, side
3: note, but I just I, I I love that in every culture still. Wherever they are on growing up on completely different sides of the world, independently, they've still thought to just look at the stars and go and draw pictures between them. Draw, yeah. Go, like, what are yeah, they? Yeah, of what, yeah. what patterns do they make? Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, it was the main source of entertainment that we've had for well hundreds they didn't have of, thousands HBO, of years. Yeah, right. Yeah. They didn't have
3: st- you know streaming services. I guess it's the same as looking at clouds, but the clouds. These clouds don't move. These clouds stay the same every night. Mm-hmm. Correct. Mm-hmm. They do.
1: They do move. I mean, I well, mean they, they, they would they would look at the differences between the the fixed and the moving stars actually so the the stars oh. in orion those would be fixed because they're moving with each other as as a whole um and it does really look like the sky is spinning around the earth but then there are there are wandering stars um which is where our word planet comes from because the planets and the moon and the sun were these points of light that appeared to move relative to all of the stuff in the background oh. like mars would have been a, a wandering star Um, So, no, not every culture saw Orion as a hunter, although many of them did if they could see the Pleiades. That's that's an interesting thing because so many cultures around the world saw the Pleiades, this little cluster of seven stars, as as like seven sisters or seven, I don't know, swans. Like the they they associated them with very feminine qualities. And because Orion is pointing towards the Pleiades, a lot of them also said that like Orion was hunting those sisters. Um you have to think about the fact that not everyone in the world is going to see constellations the same way. Uh, depending on where you are, you might not be able to see constellations, but um
2: Or if you're on drugs, then or you'll if you're see them on differently. Drugs? Yes, okay. Yeah. Or like Not everybody sees
1: <laughs> Can't Can't forget was, to mention the drugs. I am certain.
2: I am certain <laughs> yeah. that the Greeks were on something for half the constellations that oh they had. Oh my made.
1: god, they must have been. They
2: they must have been. People oh, back my. then,
1: I'm sure, were doing so many drugs. Uh, <laughs> that's that's my headcanon for the ancient world.
2: <laughs> well, here's a question for you. Uh, Pegasus, a very northern constellation, for us to make a horse out of it is actually upside down. So we knowingly made an upside down constellation. I'm just wondering, in the southern hemisphere, did they, what did, how do they? They have flipped. Because yeah. some are upside down, right? So do they think of upside down constellations or is everything right side up to them?
1: Um, I don't know that for for specific Southern cultures, but I mean, upside mm-hmm. down is just a matter of reference. Uh, I, right. I can't imagine many cultures in the past would have intentionally assigned a constellation to be upside down unless they had traveled to uh, another hemisphere, so identified it as the same group of stars, oh, but in a different it, orientation, and then went mm-hmm. back and was like, whoa, <laughs> they see this differently. Um, Wait, because
2: Pegasus does... Does look it's got some stars that resemble a horse's head. Mm-hmm. It's got that angle and the and the arc, but it is completely upside down and Pegasus, the constellation zone, has only room for half the horse. So it's an upside down flying half a horse. Half a horse. And somebody had to think that up. <laughs> I'm just saying. At least it's the but, front half.
1: That's the better yeah, exactly. half of, of the gotta, Pegasus. Yeah,
2: if it was the horse's ass, that's a whole other <laughs>
1: <laughs> Can I ask uh, you? That's a, a
2: different yeah. mythology right there.
1: Totally different. <laughs>
3: Uh, can I ask you a quick question? This this is a question that comes from uh, Matt Kirshen from Los Angeles, California. And uh, oh, wait, are
2: you a Patreon member? Is Matt Kirshen a Patreon uh, member? Uh, I'm going to check the files right
1: now. <laughs> oh, you're All have, right. To have your rights revoked.
2: I'll give you a hall pass but for this I, one I just only. wanted.
3: To, I, I am I right in thinking constellations the the stars are not necessarily anywhere near each other, or are they? Yes. Okay, so they they short answer that, yes. They so there is sort of. It, there isn't a sort of astrophysics relevance to constellations, other than that helping to know where things are. Like, because uh, the two stars could be in completely different clusters, could be. That's a that's a great question. Huge right. differences. Yeah,
2: I, I think Moya, that would be a, a, a naive. If you just approach this whole subject naively, you would say this is a constellation. It must be something scientifically relevant about this area of the sky,
1: mm-hmm. right? Yeah. If you're- why
2: wouldn't anyone think that?
1: If you don't spend a lot of time thinking about the three-dimensional nature of space, it is really easy to assume that this this tableau of pictures we see in our night sky is made up of stars that are all physically clustered together. But there is that third dimension of distance that we have to think about. So um, the stars might look close to each other in 2D, but they might be very distant from each other in that third dimension.
2: Except for the Pleiades, which you mentioned, which is a cluster, it that's an is actual... a
1: cluster. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. I did a, a research project in grad school on identifying moving groups of stars uh, by their chemistry, and we we looked at the Pleiades cluster. Um, but those, right? So in,
2: in in rare cases they are related, but that's not. Those are the exceptions. Yes. right?
1: most of the time they are yeah. separate.
2: So that question was from Matt Kirshen of Los Angeles? Yeah, and and
3: I'm sure Matt's very grateful for that answer. I'm going to quickly (laughs) squeeze in this quick question because you did mention the ancients being on on substances and Gina Martin from North Carolina just hit, said, I just hit my THC pen, so bear with me. Uh, But Gina wants to know about dark matter and wonders if dark matter could actually be the matter that escapes from black holes. Uh, The question then goes on for a little bit, but I'm just going to cut it short to there. Well,
2: let's hold that for the break. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, segment three of Astrophysics and Folklore on Star Talk with our expert Moya Mater. When we come back,
4: BP added more than seventy billion dollars to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
5: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories the early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica Empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot
2: query McQuarrie, Moya McTier, knocking it out with uh, what we're, we're trying to find out how people think about the night sky and what the relevance of that is to science and culture. With Matt Kirschen and Moya, what where what, where do we find you on social media?
1: I've made it easy for you because I know my name isn't that easy to spell. Uh, I'm Go Astro Mo on everything.
2: <laughs> Love Go it. Go Astro Mo. Yes. Whoa.
1: <laughs> I picked and, it. Uh, in 2014, and, Mo- and I felt weird about it then, but now I kind of
2: love it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's your it's your moniker. So yeah. uh, Moya, M O I Y A, and Mcteer is what it sounds like, but Go Astro Mo, I love it, Thank I love you. it. So let's let's keep this up. Oh, one thing I wanted to add to that previous uh, segment uh, when the when the questioner commented on Orion and and Mars, what was implicit there is that the star Betelgeuse which is hmm. Orion's upper shoulder, is a red giant star. So you have the red hue of that star near the red hue of Mars. And so I think that's uh, contributed to the to the uh, thrust of that question. Yeah.
1: Because there's
2: a lot of action, red action over in that part of the sky.
1: And we all know um, that red means angry. So yeah, yeah, blood. Yeah, red. <laughs> if you see it is in the sky, then the gods it's, are angry.
2: Exactly, exactly. All right, Matt, keep them coming.
3: Oh, so, so just before the break, Gina wanted to know about dark matter and whether it could actually be the matter that escapes from black holes. And then then the THC started to kick in, and the question
1: continues. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Gina, I hope you're having a great time. And I'm going to tell you, we don't know what dark matter is either, as scientists. We have a lot of hypotheses. There are things we're trying to test out. But most of what we know about dark matter is how it behaves, not what it's made of. We know that dark matter is something that can interact with other stuff gravitationally, so it can you can feel this gravitational tug, but it doesn't interact with light, so you can't see it. Um, you can't touch it. you can't, uh, you know, if you shine a light through it, the light's just not gonna know it's there. Um, is it stuff coming out of black holes? Probably probably not. I'm gonna I'll, I'll tell you now that is not one of the leading hypotheses. Um, there there were people, several decades ago who thought maybe dark matter was just a bunch of little black holes because we can't see black holes, but they also interact with stuff gravitationally. So maybe uh, dark matter is just like a big clump of tiny little black holes. But it doesn't seem like that's likely.
2: All right, plus if they were coming out of black holes, the mass of a black hole would be dropping. Yeah. And we don't really see that. Either right, right, mm-hmm. and so that was a question that came out under the influence of THC.
3: Yeah, but I think it, I think wow, it's pretty good. Okay. And also, just <laughs> while we're talking about Great. black holes, Molly Jebson says, uh, who's an American university student living in Paris, says, "I'm fascinated by white holes, and I recently read that a white white hole singularity exists in the future, and a black hole singularity exists in the past. What does that mean?
2: Was THC involved in that?
1: Question <laughs> yes, too? Uh, it sounds like it.
3: <laughs> it. It was not. Mo- Molly was." A specific as to what was influencing that question. It could have just been a sheer <laughs> uh,
1: uh, wonder of the universe. <laughs> yes,
2: that, that that is th a force of thc unto itself, mm-hmm. right? The wonder wonder of the universe. So, Moya, what do you know about white holes?
1: I know very little about white holes. I was just going to say we're beyond my realm of expertise here. Yeah, all
2: I know is that it's like a mathematical opposite of yeah. a black hole.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if a black hole, uh, you know, absorbs everything or brings everything in, not actively, it's not like a vacuum sucking, but uh, if that's what a black hole does, then a white hole should be the opposite. It uh, It's where stuff comes out.
2: Wait, Moya, someone once told me that there's no such thing as gravity, Earth sucks, and I've believed <laughs> it ever since. Are you saying, <laughs> are, you, are you trying to disavow me of this understanding <laughs> of gravity?
1: Come I, on now. I like to hold multiple truths in my head <laughs> at the same time, so. <laughs> yeah.
3: All right. Yeah. All right. All right. Matt, keep going. All right. Well, I'm going to combine these two questions, so I think this is getting back more onto home territory for both of you. So Marcus Gusterson from Sweden uh, and also Dylan, who's a physics undergrad, between the two of them, ask, what are the methods used to map the size of the Milky Way and where, we are lo- where are we located within it? And also Dylan, who's the physics undergrad, says, I'm wondering how we map the Milky Way. How do we observe something if we're currently in it? Do we just assume our looks from other galaxies?
2: Wow. Yeah. Plus, Moya, every star we see in the night sky is in the Milky Way, right? Mm-hmm. So, so tell us tell, what's going on there. I mean, we ca- colloquially, we say, see that band of light? That's the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we As do say that. As though that's something separate from the stars that are around us. So why don't you unpack that for everybody?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, so one one thing that I bring up a lot in my new podcast, Pale Blue Pod, is that we are not separate from space. It's not that we're here on Earth and then there's the Milky Way out there. We are a part of the Milky Way. The Earth is a part of it. We are a part of it. Um, So I just wanted to get that out there first. Um, Mapping the Milky Way. That's something we've been trying to do for hundreds of years. Um, I do think it's really interesting that we only realized there were other galaxies out there a hundred years ago. Uh, The great debate in the 1920s was all about uh, are we alone or are there other island universes? And it turns out there are. So that's recent. But we did know that we were in a collection. Well, just, just,
2: uh, that was Island Universe used in the context of a galaxy. Of
1: other galaxies, yes. Uh,
2: right. Not as a separate, not in the multiverse sense. Correct. Right. right. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: They were not... Uh, They were not having a great debate about the multiverse theory (laughs) in the 1920s. (laughs)
5: Um,
1: But we did know long before that that we were in this collection of bright points of light. And so the earliest map of the Milky Way was done by the Herschel siblings, Caroline and William. And that was back in the 1600s where they, they made some very simplifying, inaccurate assumptions that, one, they could see all of the stars in the Milky Way. We now know that we can't. We actually can't see most of the stars in the Milky Way. Um, and that we were in the center of it. Like they, they assumed we were in the center of it. So what they did was, was look out at the night sky and map the bright points of light, um, assuming that they were all like the same size. And so they tried to figure out the distance to them uh, using their brightness because they were all the same size. Again, lots of very bad simplifying assumptions, but they came up with this map of the Milky Way that just looks awful, Uh, but I I encourage you to look it up. That was the first attempt. These days, what we're doing is using uh, much stronger telescopes and much better assumptions about how things should be distributed throughout the Milky Way. We've made observations of other spiral galaxies, so we have an idea of what the rough shape should be. Um, But you're right, it is pretty hard to take a picture of a house when you're inside it. Like we don't, it's hard for us to get a full view of what the Milky Way looks like, but we have models. We have telescopes that can see through the dust. So we now have a better view of the center of the Milky Way. We know where we are in the Milky Way because we can see that there is more light in one direction than there is in the other. Um, so yeah, it's it's a matter of meticulous mapping over time and trying to make sure our assumptions aren't as wild as they were in the 1600s.
2: Is it as hard as an unborn child figuring out what its mother looks like?
1: I think it's easier than that. Um, okay. <laughs> I do think, because there's, there's no... They need, like,
2: remote mirrors, you know, to look <laughs> outside the, you know. Because yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I think that they're, they're, like, the baby, the unborn baby could learn about the distribution of organs, but it would have no idea what, like, the mother's face looked like.
2: Right. right I
1: okay. I feel like we have a pretty good understanding of what the Milky Way's Face looks like um, because there's not much variation really mm-hmm. when you when you boil it down to the different body parts of a galaxy there's there's not that much diversity so we, we have a pretty good idea
3: right cool all right Matt keep it coming all right well we have I have a question we have a question
2: about and, and plus I mean. Depending on how many questions you have, I might want to go into lightning mode. Yeah, and this will put Moya to the test. Yes. See if we've, she, we've got. Does she have sound bites in her? This is like I, a great test of right. the educator. I'm I'm all right. I, if we do, yeah. if we
3: go into lightning mode, I'm I'm going to have to do some editing on some of these questions because this is a this is a subject that people have gone deep on with the questions. People have really like people have written like mini essays <laughs> and because uh,
2: they babbled on and on about it. Okay. Well, they're very okay. excited
3: about it. But uh, so mm-hmm. the artist formerly known as James Smith. From Indianapolis, I remember that name from previous episodes. It says Dr. Moya, astrology astrology is a very popular subject these days. I think it's I think it's fair to say there is a popular subject all days. It uh, but James says, do people believe that the stars are influencing their lives because of tradition, or do you think it's because they have something to blame their rational behaviors or even their great luck on? Who are the first to see the stars for more than the, what they truly are? I, I'd actually say Ooh, for, for less than they truly love are as that. well. But I love that
2: yes, question, yes. And, and Moya, wouldn't modern astrology be considered folklore in your by your definitions?
1: I do, I do consider it folklore. Uh, we are creating folklore and mythology in the modern day. Uh, I think both of those reasons resonate with a lot of astrology practitioners, uh, people who follow it. Um, they need something to reason. They have been told that the stars dictate events in their lives. And I think it's very comforting for them. Uh, I think a lot of people use it as a way to feel connected to the universe larger than ourselves.
2: Okay. As so... a scientist, I,
1: I, it's, I don't, I don't follow it. I don't believe in it. As a folklorist, I love looking back at ancient astrology to see the real and practical ways that humans knew the sky did dictate their lives.
2: Okay, so you would you would distinguish then astrologers of five hundred years ago who didn't know any better Mm -hmm. and that was like their best way to account for their reality versus today where we actually do know better Mm -hmm. yet they're still doing it.
1: Yes, I would distinguish them. Um, I think that ancient astrology was extremely practical. Um, It had to do with when were you planting your crops? When were you moving because of seasonal flooding and stuff like that? Um, There were also people who read information from the sky that was less practical. Um, I I think w- it's pretty agreed upon by folklorists now that ancient Babylonians were among the first to not just track the motion of stuff in the sky, but to assign divine meaning to it, by which I mean they had priests, they had astrologer priests who spent their lives learning how stuff in the sky moved because that was their way of interpreting the will of their gods. Um, and, and there was an eclipse or something they wouldn't go to war, or if there if there was some alignment of planets of these wandering stars in the sky, then that would tell them how they how they needed to make I don't know government decisions in that time. Um, Matt, do you
2: think that'd be a badass business card? Uh, yeah, astrologer, priest, and astrophysicist. That's that. You know, you're in charge of everything at that
1: point. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the business card I have. Like, people assume uh, that because I studied the universe and because I studied folklore that I just <laughs> know how everything works. Yeah, you're
2: just totally plugged into yeah. everything that matters. You're a scientist. Matt, we got to totally do lightning round. All Here's right, lightning test. round. Go. Next
3: question. I'm going to have to summarize this question because Edwin J. Roldan from Lancaster, Pennsylvania asked, what's your opinion on the, whether the next Mars mission should have life detection experiments on it? The Mars lander right, didn't back- contain a, a life detection test, but the Viking did.
2: Yeah, one. back... 45 years ago, there were some ambiguous results from the Viking landers. And so uh, you, you think about exoplanets a lot, Moya. And if you think of Mars as a kind of an exoplanet, because we're looking and we might have life, mm-hmm. except we can also go there, um, what do you think should be the priorities for, for the upcoming rovers?
1: Yeah, I think that if there was kind of cloudy evidence before, let's try and clarify that evidence cloud. Um, as long as there aren't other instruments that would do better science, if it's not going to take up space, then yeah, let's put something on there that could um, try and detect more directly evidence of life.
3: All right, I like that. Keep going. Matt? All right, I'm combining another couple of qu- long questions and I'm going to cut them way sh- uh, very short. Jim from Brooklyn and also James Bennett, both asking about photons coming from stars. So uh, where d- James says, where does the energy of the photons go that have been redshifted due to the expansion of the universe? And Jim wants to know If I stand out in the dark, I can see Vega shining brightly. Photons from Vega are hitting my retinas, but it's also true if I'm 10 feet from my left, 30 miles out to sea, or floating in interstellar space. Um, So all these photons are coming from the same star. So basically, how many of these photons are coming off? This seems a lot of photons. And what's the deal with that? And then he goes on to questions about dark energy and matter, but I think you've answered that already.
2: (laughs) There's a million photons.
1: So many photons. One of my favorite things about light is that it's isotropic. If you have a source of light, photons are going to be coming off of it in all directions. Um, And as they spread out, they're still going to hit you even if you're 10 feet to the left or somewhere in the middle of the ocean. It's all one of the millions of photons coming from that same star.
3: Millions.
1: (laughs) So many photons. Um, I feel like that is very separate from the first question you asked.
3: So the first question was, what happens to the energy of the redshifted photons?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, so the the redshift of the universe only happens on very large scales. When we're talking about Vega or other stars within our own galaxy that we're seeing, they are not being redshifted away from us because of the expansion of the universe. Um, it's light from very distant galaxies that are being redshifted from the expansion of the universe. Neil, do you want to talk about where that energy goes?
2: Oh yeah, sure. There's still the same amount of energy. It's just now diluted. Okay, <laughs> so the total energy is still there, but it's now spread over a much larger volume. And so when you dilute the energy, the photon you detect okay, has has lower energy, but the total energy of all of space remains the same from what had been put into it from the beginning. So it's so we have we think of energy density, in the way you can think of matter density. Have, some things are more dense than others. You know, a brick is denser than a than a balloon. So when you stretch out the universe, um, things just get less energy dense, but you're not losing any energy to some secret place.
1: It's more diffuse.
2: There you go. All right, Matt, go for it. So, uh,
3: so Sandra Pagliani, who who like many of the questions says nice things about the podcast first. And then says, "Can you possibly explain ghosts?" Well, can we
2: hear the nice things? <laughs> I want to hear the nice oh, things. Oh, I, I a, We'll, we'll to skip over that. I
1: thought I could, we were in a lightning round, Neo. So no, we didn't sorry, have time except for the, for the when whole.
2: People say nice things.
1: Oh, then there's been, a, been a bunch of nice round. things okay. that various
3: people have said. So I just said my favorite podcast of all time. Uh, the, someone else who I, I can't remember now says, "Thank you for all the science and the humor." They're, they're, people to say, people say lovely things about you. I uh, and and the show. Okay,
2: I think they're doing that just to get their question answered. Say you say nice. Maybe may true, but a valid words. strategy.
3: But Sandra, <laughs> okay. Sandra says Could you possibly explain ghosts with physics? Since we can only perceive a specific range of the frequency spectrums when it comes to sound and light, we base our reality on these limitations. Could it be that what we call, quote, ghosts is residual energy from past that is reaching us now, filtering into our current state of reality for a brief moment? Frequencies can create resonances at various harmonic intervals. So some of those frequencies can be picked up by humans. Dot dot dot. Possibly. Wow.
1: I... And
2: and and more. <laughs> ghosts are, aren't they part of folklore? Ghosts are I mean, absolutely and... part of folklore.
1: Look, yes. I, I have never learned anything in any of my science classes that told me ghosts couldn't exist.
2: Oh. <laughs> oh. I see what you did there.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh,
2: there's not a chapter why ghosts don't exist. I've in never read that textbook. Mm-mm.
1: Oh. <laughs> um, but. I, I, like I said before, I like to hold two truths in my mind at the same time. I, I would love a world where ghosts and magic and these other folklore things exist. Um, that's why I study them. I like to inhabit that world. Um, science can't explain most of that yet. So maybe one day there will be a textbook that says definitively whether or not ghosts exist because of physics. But until I read that, that book, Science is real, and also ghosts could happen.
3: Oh, okay. What about Frankenstein's?
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is that is science. Yes.
3: Uh, uh, what that about is the a mad scientist. What yeah. about vampires? What
2: Draculas. about Dracula? Oh, yeah, the list. I got a list ready to come. I love. Oh, awesome. I they're sp-
3: but- specifically calling it Frankenstein's just to annoy the many pedants who listen to this show.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, get away <laughs> from the Frankenstein versus Frankenstein's <laughs> monster thing. Um. Yeah, Frankenstein was just a human. He was just a scientist. So, yeah, that exists.
2: The <laughs> Dr. <design>. Frankenstein, yeah. <laughs> the doctor,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. There actually are some very interesting scientific ties to the origin of, of a lot of these folkloric figures. Um, I've been listening to some podcasts recently about uh, where the various myths about vampires came from cuz there are there are animals that suck blood there are animals that will dig up graves uh there are reasons why you might find these stories very present um throughout the world
2: oh uh, uh, with natural causes is what you're saying yeah
1: exactly i mean the, right, this is right. so I I didn't get a chance to say this in the first segment, but the main interest I have in this intersection between science and folklore is that I really do believe they're two sides of the same coin. And that coin is something you can buy understanding of the universe with. People weren't just making up stories for the fun of it. Most of the time, ancient humans were observing the world around them and coming up with explanations that fit into their worldview. And as we scientifically progressed, and we gained tools, and we had accumulated knowledge over thousands of years, then our worldview shifted uh, away from magic and and gods and folklore. But the, there's still use. There's still value in the stories and the observations that people made.
2: Mm, mm, mm. So what you should do is write a book of today's <laughs> folklore <laughs>
1: Ooh.
2: that one day science will have something to say about. Yeah. About that. Oh, I'd love yeah, that. Lovely. Yeah, all
1: the little superstitions, and then maybe the in 100 years, pe- yeah, scientists will be like, oh, this, that's why that happens.
2: All right. Well, we'll hope to get you back on this show before 100 years from now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Please.
2: <laughs> <laughs> when we have that, Moya, it's been a delight to finally meet you. Matt, great to have you here. Always oh, great to be here. All right, you've been watching, possibly listening to Star Talk Cosmic Queries, our folklore edition. Loving it. Our Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. Keep looking up.
4: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
5: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.